0: And welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden of the University of Johannesburg Center for African Diplomacy and Foreign Policy. Good afternoon. Actually, good morning, Kobus. Good morning. Well, we are back after a brief hiatus, in part because uh, we were off last week because Cobus was at a a fascinating conference uh, called Imagining Globality in Edmonton, Alberta. Tell us a little bit about what you were doing there and, and who was there and
1: why it might be interesting. Um, it was a really interesting conference with a bunch of people from you know from all over the world focusing on how China is expanding its image overseas particularly in in relation to soft power to diplomacy to media related issues and the way that China is is becoming a kind of a, a more, more of a presence in the in the global information scape um, so it was super interesting i had a, a bunch of really fascinating you know met a really bun- a bunch of fast Fascinating people, and um, there were some really interesting papers, including you know kind of papers on the role of investigative journalists um, in China, and you know kind of what their lives are like, and also a, a really interesting paper on on the issue of uh, the harmonious world, you know, and and uh, the, the um, evolution of that concept in Chinese discourse, you know. So it was it you know, it was perfect for me, you know, kind of it's all the stuff that I'm really interested in.
0: You know, did anybody raise the question? And this is What I think about in the context of Africa is the Chinese have spent an enormous amount of money building out CCTV. They've got a China Daily Africa edition. They've got China Radio International Africa now. They're broadcasting in French, in Arabic, in English. I mean, the money they have spent is tremendous. But is there any calculation or or thought in terms of if it's bringing any result? Is it actually working? Do you find, is there any research that suggests that more Africans are actually consuming Chinese media?
1: This is it's a difficult issue this is actually some of what my my own paper was dealing with this issue um, you know kind of it, it becomes complicated um, on w- like which CCTV channel you're looking at because obviously CCTV tend to talk from a, a few different mouths at the same time they they are covering Africa um, and they're doing they're doing it more in French and increasing in Swahili and in English but they're also you know some of their work is also uh, caring for Chinese people in Africa you know Kind of so they have actually a more complicated kind of presence, I think, in the world than, than people frequently acknowledge. Um, so you need to, you know, so even if they don't necessarily, even if they're not making, you know, strides into the African market, which I, I'm not saying they're not. But, you know, even if they're not, they're still fulfilling a purpose because there's so many Chinese people who are living in Africa now. So it becomes really complicated. Also, you know, I was looking, for example, in my work, I was looking at the the visual Presentation of China, um, and you realize that you know kind of, you can't just look at CCTV as a state mouthpiece because it actually contains a multitude of voices, all kinds of ads, and you know for for different state governments, for commercial enterprises, state-owned enterprises, and so on. So it becomes pretty complicated. It's it's an interesting thing to look at.
0: Well, it's interesting. You were having this discussion in Edmonton, Alberta, at the same time that uh, Deutsche Welle, the German broadcaster, held a conference uh, in Germany. Uh, with uh, Yushan Wu, who participated. Yushan was, uh, of course, a guest on our show. She's, I think, it's Stellenbosch. Is that correct?
1: We- no she's at um, she's at the South African Institute for That's international right. Affairs exactly. at, at the University of the Witwatersrand. Um, I hope to actually I hope to invite her back actually to talk to us about that conference so, and
0: we posted that up on our facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa project so if you want to kind of find out there was a nice QA with her about Chinese media uh, from Germany and so that was there so uh, kobus we'll get we'll kind of come back to to media it's one of our recurring themes on the show uh, in another episode but meanwhile, for this edition of the show, we're going to focus on three topics as we normally do. One, we're going to talk about Ghana. Uh, Ghana has turned out to be this this question of... the the illegal uh, mining, gold mining and the deportation of some 218 miners uh, has turned out really to be the story of the year. Uh, As much as Xi Jinping going to Africa, this is the the big story of the year. We'll give an update on that as some more analysis come through uh, and some fascinating insights that we can talk about in terms of the behind the scenes as to how the mining operations work. And so we'll talk about that. Secondly, we're going to go and focus on uh, on dam building. This has really been a a trend of the past few to you know, few weeks where there's been one announcement after another from Mali to Uganda to the DRC uh, of new Chinese-funded hydroelectric dams, which of course brings all sorts of controversy with it. Uh, the environmental impact is something to consider, uh, but also the, the the potential energy benefit for for African governments as well and African consumers. So, and then um, we're going to end by by aggravating me. And uh, with uh, with another report from uh, from from a human rights group, this time from uh, Amnesty International, uh, about uh, conflict minerals and, and, and artisanal mining in uh, the DRC, where they they put some blame on the Chinese. Uh, I am not aggravated by the fact that they put blame on the Chinese. Blame is due where blame is due. It's just you know it's another just boneheaded human rights report, and we'll get into that as well. So um, so <laughs> I think I blew the lead there a little bit, Cobus. Uh, <laughs> Okay, let's get into Ghana very quickly. Uh, You know, so 218 Chinese are now uh, presumably back in China, mostly from uh, the very, very poor province of uh, Guangxi, in a town, a village called Shanglin, and uh, and this has really become Cobus a. Um, a case study in, 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 in kind of the evolution of, of China's you know, diplomacy with Africa. We've talked about this with a number of our guests in the past, saying that one of the, the key things that China will have to do as its relationship with Africa, the continent, matures, is that it's going to have to stop dealing with the continent and go country by country. This crisis in in Ghana really is, is a good example of how the Chinese have had to focus in on Ghanaian diplomacy and really solve this problem at, at a national level rather than a continental level. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts looking back on, on what, what we've seen over the past four to six weeks and how do you think the Chinese have handled this and and what was motivating, in your opinion, the, the Ghanaians to, do, to take action against not only Chinese but also uh, other West African illegal mining operations as well?
1: yeah I think the thing to keep in mind about the situation in Ghana is that Ghana has a lot of gold and it has gold that's relatively easily accessible it's surface surface accessible gold um, you know compared to South Africa which is which still is um, africa 's biggest gold producer but south africa 's gold is very deep so um, South African gold has been you know you know since the turn of, of the last century South African gold mining has been concentrated in the hands of mega corporations um, because you need to go down several kilometers down to the ground to get it in Africa and in Ghana, um, you know, kind of the, the gold is relatively accessible in rivers particularly. Um, so it's possible for, for small scale mining to actually go ahead. Um, and for that reason, the, the, the Ghanaian government has, has kept small mines. So that's under 25 acres, um, for Ghanaians. And that's the law in Ghana. Only Ghanaians can, can, can do this kind of low tech mining. Um, you know kind of so since the Chinese people have been moving in um, you know kind of that has, uh, that has caused kind of rumbling discontent for a while and we, we spoke about it before um, and you know kind of already the Chinese government already sent a delegation in March apparently to try and deal with some of this and now of course after the raid when a bunch of these, of these, uh, sorry, of these uh, Chinese were arrested and then the whole of Weibo exploded you know kind of um, you know kind of sending around images some of which were clearly faked of of, uh, you know, kind of Chinese people being abused and mistreated, um, you know, it, it turned into a, dip, a full, full-blown kind of diplomatic crisis. I think generally it seems to me that the Chinese, people, the Chinese government tended to handle this quite well, actually. And also, you know, kind of, you know, both sides actually quickly negotiated and tried to sort out the issue. Um, I was wondering whether you thought the uh, – whether – you know, your impression was that the Ghanaian government got a little bit more than it bargained for. Whether it, it underestimated the, the kind of power of the Chinese internet and the kind of like explosion of reaction to this,
0: I don't know. If, if, you know, again, in the Chinese side, that was you know a big issue. But I don't know if that you know, all politics is local at the end of the day. And and my guess is that the the Ghanaian government, the Mohammed administration, was responding to to increasing local pressure. From both from from mining constituents as well as just the impression of having so much uh, rampant illegal mining going on, so I doubt that the the Chinese social media had a big impact. In part because you've got that big language barrier that goes on. But what I was most impressed from this past week, chou uh, Xujin, who is a foreign ministry spoke. Uh, I'm sorry, director. He's a head of uh, one of the heads of consular affairs in Beijing at the foreign ministry. He really emphasized this past week that this issue of the, the mining issue is not going to harm or derail uh, sino Ghanaian relations. And I think that was very, very well received in Accra. Um, there, there must have been a concern in the foreign ministry in Accra that said, uh-oh, this is getting to be a much bigger issue than we thought it was going to be. Uh, this could potentially derail our relationship with China. China now is one of the largest purchasers of cocoa. They're one of the largest purchasers of obviously of gold, even legitimate gold. And they're also one of the largest purchasers of oil. They paid for the foreign ministry building. They're a very, very deep relationship with with Ghana that's getting deeper now. Uh, And so when I think the foreign – when a senior diplomat comes out and says, don't worry – it's all going to be okay. Um, that to me was a very interesting uh, development, and really trying to kind of set this onto two channels. One is that you've got these, you know, these problems clearly that are out of the control in some cases of the governments, and then you've got this other track, which is to say, on a bilateral government-to-government relationship, we're solid, we're doing well. So I thought that was very good. Um, you know, w- I, you know, Kobus, In terms of overall diplomacy. You know, my—I guess this is something that you brought up. The issue there there was a comparison that can be made to what happened in Zambia with the Colum mine, and the Colum mine, uh, if, if you recall, was one that was shut down by the Zambian government. And a lot of people, particularly in the Western media, took this as a negative sign for China. You actually came out with the contrarian view and said, you know, actually, I think this is kind of a good thing because it's a, these are nothing but headaches for the local Chinese embassy and the Chinese foreign ministry in Beijing. Well, they don't really want to pay attention and deal with these kind of petty you know, labor instances and these nu- 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 nuisances like this. So what's your thought when, it, when, you, when you see the – you know is this good news or bad news for the relationship overall for China?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, to a certain extent, the, it, it, Allowed the Chinese the, the the opportunity to try and fix some of this some of this problem which has been simmering for a while. At the same time, I think it probably um, you know showed them that no matter you know for for a long time the Chinese um, you know official voice was you know tried uh, tried hard to put some kind of daylight between actual Chinese citizens in a country and the Chinese government. So you know, kind of frequently the, the the basic line would be they call on Chinese citizens to to respect the laws. Of the country, and that's the end. You know, kind of, they don't necessarily see the very fact that these are Chinese citizens as a need for them to, for the government to intervene. You know, um, I think now they're probably realizing more clearly that no matter, you know, to which extent, to, no, no matter to the extent that they see that they see the two cases as separate, like from the African perspective, they're seen as the same. You know, kind of, so these these um, Chinese people are, are seen as China. You know, kind of, and that uh, that China needs to respond, um, and that they are there, for that reason kind of developing ways to try and respond to it. You know, kind of, I think I think the response was much more comprehensive and and you know, kind of um, quicker and, and stronger than than you know, kind of similar problems in the past. Um, and I think that is probably a good development. You know, kind of, I think that it's it's a more realistic way of dealing with the issue.
0: Well, let me bring up four points made by Professor Li Anshan and Li Professor Li is uh, one of the – I would say one of the great scholars on, on Sino-African relations, uh, particularly from within China. He's at Beijing University. Uh, and he, sh- he made four comments that I think that are interesting to share uh, about why he thinks that the the way that this is developed is generally a good thing for sino ghanaian relations. Number one, he says it helps Ghana reach an agreement with China for future events. So now that we've got a precedent – Uh, it will be easier to solve this problem in the future. So, okay, that seems pretty reasonable. Uh, Cobus, jump in here anytime if you want to comment. Number two, um, he says it makes China understand the seriousness of the situation as well, not only in Ghana but also in Africa as a whole, that the Chinese have to start taking the question of their immigrants and illegal labor more seriously. Now, this is something that Howard French has brought up on a number of instances that – we are, we, if we have not already crossed that point, we are very soon that the, the sheer number of Chinese immigrants in Africa is, is far in excess of what the government can actually do anything about.
1: So Yeah, I, and I think I think they're gonna have to develop some kind of new new kind of mechanisms of keeping track of them. You know, kind of, because I think, think you know, kind of Chinese immigrants frequently, you know, move to the most rural parts of a country simply because they you know they, they face less competition there. I just, so they are particularly hard to keep to keep track that
0: right. of I you know I, I you know that would seem ideal, that would be wonderful, but I don't see that happening. Uh, you know, the Chinese embassies are notorious around the world for not really giving a crap about their citizens in those countries. Um, they don't provide support, they don't provide assistance, there's no way for them to check in, uh, and there's a lot of skepticism on the part of Chinese towards their own embassy so whereas as an yes, American they, fr-
1: they frequently refuse to even register themselves with the they don't
0: register so as an yeah. American you know when I, when I go to a different country particularly a, a country that doesn't have a lot of stability such as the DRC or you know I- some countries in Asia I register with the embassy just to say okay if the poop hits the fan uh, you'll know where to find me uh, the, the Chinese don't do that so I'm, I'm not so sure that we'll ever see any reliable mechanism to be able to count or account for the number of Chinese but nonetheless it's at least something that the Chinese government, and I agree with Professor Lee here, has to start taking seriously in its rhetoric as well. Right now, it's been saying for a long time, well, that's not us. That's not an official position. Those are just independent actors. They don't, we don't have anything to do with them. Mm. They will have to start taking responsibility for at least some of it, I think, in the future. And so point number three that Professor Li points out is that he also says this is a precedent and a template for other African governments to solve similar problems. Uh, this question of illegal labor, not just in mining, but we've seen this in Malawi with with merchants, we've seen it in Namibia with hairstylists, we've seen it in Zambia uh, as well, uh, is something that is really a transcontinental problem. And so I have a feeling a lot of governments are going to look to what happened in Ghana and say, okay, maybe we'll start to deport as well, or we'll crack down as well. And Cobus, that seems to really, you know, That would be well received I think in Beijing because Beijing's public line at least has always been that its companies and its citizens must adhere to the local laws of wherever they are living.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, this is also, this is the point that Dambisa Moyo, the, the economist, has been making a lot, is that African governments need to take responsibility to enforce their own laws. And, you know, obviously, it's, it's their responsibility, but it's also their right. It's the government. It's their laws. It's their people. This is the point that the economist, um, Dambisa Moyo has been making a lot, that African governments need to take responsibility for, to implement their own laws. You know, it's, it's their responsibility and it's also their right. I mean, they're the government. So, um, they have to make sure the systems that, they implement are that they work um, and you know so it, you you can 't have people you know kind of just moving in and kind of mining you know kind of everywhere you know um it's you, you need you need systems to actually. You know, benefit the people of the country. So I think it's probably in the long run, it's a, it's a good development, I think.
0: And uh, another point that uh, Professor Lee kind of talks about in the context of you know, African government speaking up is that one of the things that smaller countries do is they stay silent in order to kind of you know, avoid rumbling and, uh, and ruffling the feathers of Beijing for fear that Beijing will take their investments and go elsewhere. And he says, in the long run, this is not a good thing that all African governments, large and small, should be open and honest and direct with Beijing in order to have a good relationship. This also would help, I think, the continent, is that if, you know, we've talked about pan-Africanism, you know, it doesn't usually work out that way because each country has its own agenda and its own issues. Uh, Nonetheless, if there is a uniform voice coming from the African Union or coming from regional groupings to say, listen, this is not working for us, because as you pointed out, Cobus you know the the migration is is uh, you know people are migratory they don't really pay that much attention to borders uh you know they'll go from rwanda into the drc into south africa wherever the opportunities are so this is a regional if not a continent-wide problem
1: yeah you know absolutely um i think you know kind of it it also it, it also um casts doubt on the on the the old cliche of the you know kind of big oppressor China and the small, you know, kind of small weak kind of Africa. That that kind of that colonial relationship that that people frequently still kind of trot out now. You know, I think it it shows that Africa is in a much more complicated and, but more but stronger position, you know, kind of where they can actually enforce their own laws, but that it takes a, a certain amount of energy and that it might not go very particularly smoothly. That, you know, that, that we're in a, uh, in a phase at the moment where these precedents need to be set. Um, and that once they're set, then things will start, you know, kind of working toward to, to everyone's benefit more, I think.
0: Well, to your point about the complexity of the situation, uh, Deborah Braudigam, who, of course, is well known as being one of the preeminent scholars on this has a blog at china africa dot com that 's china africa uh, and this week she actually opened up her blog for a guest post by Yang Jiao who is a Ph.D. candidate from the University of Florida and has apparently uh, done quite a bit of field work on Chinese business operations in Ghana. And he wrote uh, a guest post, uh, Chinese illegal gold miners in Ghana, that was by far the most illuminating piece of work that I've read on this subject. Uh, and it really kind of highlights the inner workings of how uh, this got to be the situation that it is. And once again, on, you, know, you don't get this from the mainstream press coverage. Um, I sound like a Fox News anti-like, lamestream media type <laughs> of person, but it's, it's it's I can see their frustration sometimes, uh, but you, you know what he points out is how, in order for the Chinese to operate illegally in Ghana, it takes an enormous amount of support from corrupt Ghanaian officials, from corrupt Ghanaian companies uh, who facilitate this. And the point is not to kind of point blame anywhere. The point is to actually say that. Um, it takes two to tango, and this happened in part because of weak governance, weak Ghanaian governance that if the laws were being applied and being followed, and if there wasn't as severe a corruption problem in Ghana as there apparently is, uh then this situation wouldn't exist uh so I think what did you think of uh, of young's uh post and you know, and again, I really really recommend this as a read. I've posted it up on our Facebook page, which you can go to Deborah Brodigim's blog uh Kobus, what were your thoughts?
1: yeah absolutely i love this piece um and you know kind of he, he in the first place he makes a very basic you know kind of point that you, these chinese people are these chinese kind of uh, you know kind of small-scale miners they're not just arriving and starting to mine like a lot of Ghanaian commentators have actually portrayed them. They, they, I was reading one guy um, who was literally saying that they arrive at the airport and the next day they're digging holes in our landscape. It's like, no. You know, kind of like what, what actually happens in between those two phases is that they get a Ghanaian partner who has a, a small-scale mining license with whom they then partner um, and they, their official you know, position in this relationship is that they're helping these Ghanaians to mine um, by, among other, other things, kind of importing small-scale, you know, kind of uh, earth-moving equipment. So, you know, it's, it's, it's much more complicated. They, they, there's every phase of their, of their kind of – their presence in Ghana has to be okayed by some kind of Ghanaian official. Right. Um, and these, these Ghanaian officials are paid off frequently, you know, kind of frequently by middle, by middlemen. So it's, it's, it's really important to keep that in mind.
0: And I also found that he, he kind of details the role of visa brokers – um, that it 's not actually easy for a Chinese person or you know, legal minor to actually get into to Ghana. Uh, you have to go the take these very circuitous routes, and they work with brokers who kind of bring them overland from uh, from other African countries. They they you know and, and the way that they kind of get their documentation in order, what little they have, is absolutely fascinating. So, uh, highly highly recommend uh, that post on China Africa Real Story. Once again, you can find that on our Facebook page. Our Facebook page, you know, Kobus. I don't know when you were traveling if you had a chance to check it out. Oh, that's right, you were posting quite a bit when you were on the road. Uh, so that was uh, and one of the things that's really changed. In the past, I'd say three to four weeks, is the the dynamism of the conversation has just exploded. It's really incredible when you go onto that page and just see all of the discussions that are going on. Uh, some of them actually get pretty heated. We've got you know over. Uh, uh, I think Robert Mugabe uh, is, is generating an enormous amount of, uh, of tension and controversy, which is not <laughs> surprising always. as always <laughs> uh, on the page. But that's at com slash China Africa Project. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear on your comments on the show, uh, if there's stories that you'd like to recommend, if you'd like to come on the show. Uh, we've had a number of people who just kind of hit us up on Facebook and said, I've got something to say. I want to be on the show. And, you know, pretty quickly, there, there they are. So uh, so that would be great. Copus, let's move on to our second subject. And today we're going to talk about dams. And this really came about because if, if, you, if you do what we do, which is, you know, kind of follow the news and post up onto Twitter and also onto Facebook and things like that, you start to kind of see some patterns develop. And over the past, I'd say, four to six weeks – there have been one and one piece of news after another, an announcement after another i don 't think they 're coordinated in any way uh, relating to hydroelectric dam announcements. Uh, so let me just kind of read through the list CObus of of the first batch, and then we 'll save the the second batch for later um, let 's start with the smallest in in western Mali. One hundred and forty megawatt dam is being pl- uh, planned for Gowena. Uh I found this one to be interesting in part because Mali is technically still a country at war. Uh, and yet the Chinese yeah. are and a, and a desert, and a desert as well. But yet it it kind of shows you, you know how. You know, you know, the, the blood was not even off the streets of Baghdad before the Chinese oil companies moved into Iraq. I, mm-hmm. you know, I was reading mm-hmm. how the Chinese are negotiating, uh, already started talks with the Taliban to figure out how they can kind of you know, maneuver into to, to eastern Afghanistan, which is right across the border from China, uh, as there's mineral mining there. And so the Chinese seem to have a pattern of moving in before everybody else does to get deals going and to do infrastructure projects even before the conflict is over. Uh, there are still French troops on the ground in Mali, but yet we have a news of a 140-megawatt dam in, in western Mali being announced. Now we're going up to a different level, and uh, in the Karuma plant along the Nile, this was announcement last week. It's a 600-megawatt plant along the Nile River. Uh, this one's caused a little bit of controversy in part because, uh, you know, first of all, it's along the Nile and anything along the nile is going to is going to be controversial because downstream from the nile is about 600 million people <laughs> and uh, that might be an overstatement but nonetheless there are a lot of people who depend on the nile for water and so if one country mm. along the way wants to dam it up as we're seeing now with ethiopia and egypt and egypt has even said president morsi has said he will go to war to prevent the Ethiopians from damming up the Nile for energy, so so yes. the Nile is a particularly sensitive body of water, but it, do you know anything about this, this area because I was reading how uh, you know this is a particularly beautiful, pristine part of Uganda, and there is concern that the Chinese dam at Karuma is really going to mess up the the, the, the the environment
1: there yeah there 's a lot of talk that it 's also going to displace a lot of of local communities. Um, the the project has been stalled for a long time. Um, I think, you know, partly because of these issues, partly because funding, um, ideas of what should be funded by the World Bank and other big funding organizations changed, um, you know, over, over the last two, during the 90s. So for a long time, hydropower fell out of favor. Um, and these kind of massive infrastructure projects, you know, kind of, you know, that you couldn't get funding for them. Um, and now, you know, kind of, because of Chinese funding, because of because of the fact that Chinese um, contractors are, are so, you know, kind of built, you know, projects like the Three Gorges Dam and so on. So so they're really at the cutting edge of the, of this kind of technology. Now suddenly all of these projects are jumping ahead. And that, is, that was the, the situation in Uganda as well.
0: So Uganda, the Karuma plant is a $1.65 billion plant. It's, the contract will be uh, largely done by Sinohydro, which is the largest hydroelectric uh, construction company in the world. Uh, they are doing both the dam as well as the transmission, and I think that's an important distinction to make as well. Is that you know you, one of the big problems in in Africa is you don't have an electric network to actually get the energy mm. out. So so they're also going to be building that as well. And I wonder though about what your, your point that you made in terms of the World Bank, because you know these big dam projects, particularly in Africa, were really a case study for the ineptitude of the of the World Bank. And, and how they would fund these projects that people didn't want, that were environmentally devastating. Uh, and there was a consensus for a long time that finally the World Bank was getting out of the business of building these these kind of white elephants. Now, yes. I wonder if, it, if they've gotten into it only because the Chinese are there to fund. And remember, the Chinese now are funding at a level larger than the World Bank in Africa. So are they – do you think they're getting into this just because they don't want to be left behind in Africa and they want to be part of the of the discussion – or are they, is there some other reason that I'm missing that finally or not finally? at the, the World Bank is, is actually getting back into the funding game for, for, for
1: dams. I think, you know, two other factors would be that that for a long time um, the idea of, of economic growth in Africa, you know, kind of took a little bit of a backseat compared to issues like governance and civil society and, and so on. Um, so now suddenly because because of, of shifts in commodity prices, because China shifts in, in, in funding patterns by child driven by China, suddenly the idea that Africa should be growing at you know at at massive rates is it's a very sexy idea. So now suddenly, um, you know, kind of people are reassessing the reasons, you know, kind of why Africa had problems growing before. And of course, electricity is one of the big reasons. So I think that's probably, you know, kind of led to a new new attention to it. Well, it's no doubt going to be one of the limiting factors on Africa's
0: growth. So Africa now has Uh, seven or eight of the world's fastest-growing economies. Uh, But, you know, a lot of experts believe that that's going to hit a ceiling at some point simply because the infrastructure on the continent uh, is not sufficient enough to support the growth. And that is... Exactly.
1: I think the... Yeah, I think the other issue was was Fukushima. You know, kind of. So before that, you you know, before this, the current hydro boom, I think a lot of African countries were looking at nuclear, and I know South Africa is definitely looking at more nuclear power plants as well. Um, And you know, kind of, but but post Fukushima, suddenly hydro is looking a a bit a little sexier, I think. Well, and this is really one of the big differences, and this is
0: going, we're going to get into our last major announcement. Actually, let me, let me first make our announcement on the, the last dam, and then that will kind of get us into the merits of whether hydroelectric makes sense. Uh, so mm-hmm. we've talked about uh, you know, 140, 600 megawatts, 700 megawatts. Those are cute, cute, tiny little numbers compared to what's coming. Uh, bear in mind that the world's largest hydroelectric dam, is the Three Gorgeous Dam in China. And that does about 22,500 megawatts. So that's a big, big dam. Uh, what they're talking about now in the DRC in the, you know, along the Congo River, and this is called the Grand Inga Dam, is 40,000 megawatts. And this is a dam yeah. that, if it does actually come online, could power half of Africa. Uh, yes. it, it is just a stunning, stunning, uh, you know, depending on where you come from, on this subject, so people who are opposed to to hydroelectric dams, they look at this as the mother of all hydroelectric dams, and this is just going to be mm. the worst disaster you can possibly imagine. And I believe that this is one of those issues, Cobus, where you can look at it from any way, and you're right. <laughs> you know, yes. if you look at yes. it from the point of view of the environmentalists and uh, the International Rivers Network and some of these other groups who have been very vocally opposed to, to dams, and all of their concerns seem justified. The Ghanaians and – I'm sorry, the, uh, the Congolese in the DRC have a terrible record when it comes to maintenance uh, of the existing dams that they've got. Um, corruption is a huge problem. When you have a dam of this size, if something goes wrong, it is a disaster. It is
1: not just a problem. Yeah, I mean it's, it's a, a disaster, disaster, disaster beyond imagining actually. It's beyond um, imagining. You know, oh, yeah. kind of. I mean, the the Three Gorges Dam itself has has been, you know, multiply criticised for some of some of the kind of problems and potential dangers it it, it holds. And I mean, that's in China. It's a it's a, you know it's a very it's a relatively sophisticated country with with high technology. I mean, having a, a dam that's twice the size of the Three Gorges Dam in one of the most war torn <laughs> and, and underdeveloped countries on earth that's a, it's a challenge. It's um, yeah. on, on on the other hand, but let's look at the know, other side. Yeah. Yeah, like the South Africans are... Panting for this dam. Like they are, like they, they, had, a, they had an investor meeting in Paris last month, um, and the South Africans were there. They already signed up. They're already, like, you know, kind of saying that they're buying the first, the first electricity that's coming off that project. You know, kind of the World Bank is involved, um, Sino Hydro is involved, of course. Um, so, you know, the South Africans are dying for this dam because, because South Africa has, like, the worst electricity situation. Um, you know, kind of part of the reason why South Africa's growth rate is so low. Is because electricity is so weak. Well, um, and, and, you know, and, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's just it's, – it, it will power half of the subcontinent.
0: And, uh, and South Africa is saying it will buy half of the output. Uh, you know, so 20,000 megawatts would go directly to South Africa. Uh, you know, this is – we're looking at at least an 11 to $13 billion project. Uh, it, my guess is that if that's what they're publicly saying today, this is going to be a $20 billion project by the time it's done. Um, and so this is a massive thing. So, so we talked about the bad. The bad is that the DRC really should not be trusted to take care of, uh, of a project this large. I mean if you've spent five minutes in the DRC, you know that everything is effed up beyond all imagination. And something of this scale is very, very concerning in part because let's say it does go online. Let's say that you start supplying half the subcontinent with electricity, and then oh, on a Tuesday afternoon at 3.43, it just goes down for some reason because you know some Congolese guy forgot to put a part in there, um, which is exactly what happens. You're going to turn half of the, the subcontinent dark. <laughs> Secondly, yes, you, have a, yes. you have a big distribution problem as well. So you're going to be generating all of this electricity, uh, but yet, as we talked about, the grid is not sophisticated enough to get that electricity to where it needs to go. So that's another problem. Uh, But let's talk about the the positive side. And this is where I get a little bit frustrated with environmentalists, and particularly those in the West, who only look at the negatives. But, you know, if you've lived in Kinshasa or, as you've talked about in South Africa, brownouts, blackouts uh, are a fact of life. Uh, Six to eight hours a day, oftentimes, you don't have electricity or you have intermittent electricity. Um, And that is, you know, it's difficult for hospitals. It's difficult to run businesses. um, It is just the reality of living in these parts of the world. So there is a desperate need to have a consistent, stable supply of electricity. Uh, And the idea that you should use solar is impossible because of the cost. Um, Oil is too expensive for most of these countries to import in vast numbers. So these rivers are sitting there, and I can absolutely see the appeal of why these governments say let's use the resources that we have so we don't become dependent on importing oil and we can actually start providing electricity to our people so there is some logic to it you know even if it is environmentally dangerous
1: yeah, I mean, you, you see a lot of the same kind of issues coming up around Brazil, who is also planning a bunch of massive dams. Um, and what frustrates me about this this discourse um, from Western NGOs frequently is that, you know, kind of, um, I mean, the environmental cost of it is 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 a massive problem. And one of the you know, interesting environmental issues is that a lot of the rain that feeds the river um, you know, is dependent on intact um, rainforest systems, you know, kind of, so the more rainforest that's destroyed, the less rain you have and the less river you have. So th- that's, a, that's a kind of a big issue. On the other hand, um, there is a certain kind of strain of discourse in the West where, you know, kind of where these dams are criticized because they're displacing all of these local people around around in, in that area, which of course is a, is a massive problem. But there's no other, you know, no, no alternative given except you shouldn't want to develop this much anyway. You know, kind of like, you know, there, there's this kind of thing of like, oh, but all of this, you know, these, these local people aren't getting any of this elect- electricity. It's all going to the urban centers and the mining industry. And I'm like, yes, of course it is, because the urban centers and the mining industry is powering the country. And if those urban centers don't have electricity, what you have is urban chaos, you know, kind of which, which is uh, a problem in Africa at the best of times. That's right. You know, in, in South Africa, you have you have rolling it's because people don't have electricity. So just keeping the state together, electricity is an, is an important part of that. And frequently... The Western NGOs don't want to deal with the, the, the size of the problem of underdevelopment. They don't want to deal with the, with the implications of underdevelopment. Um, you know, they, they, they want to keep those issues separate, and I think you can't keep them separate.
0: Yeah, and there is, again, a, a solution. So if it's not hydroelectric or – and I have this conversation with a lot of people about nuclear – and to say, okay, if countries are going to be in accordance with the Kyoto Protocols, which a lot of European countries and uh, and other countries say they want to do, so you want to limit your carbon emissions, um, what do you do? You know, burning fossil fuels is not going to be the long term answer. Uh, I am not advocating these dams. I think this is a very very risky move for a lot of these countries in terms of the operation. You know, building it's one thing, maintaining it's another. But at the same time, Kobus, I see – I hear your points absolutely, which says what are people going to do? Uh, you know, they need to have electricity. They need to grow their businesses. They need to grow their economies. People need stability in their electric supply. And if this is the only way to do it, you know, I kind of understand it. Um, but it does highlight yeah, one other yeah. interesting point. You know, here I am in Southeast Asia where there is a growing level of tension over the Mekong. And and rivers that we talked about with the Nile and the Congo River, you know, which doesn't have those tensions yet, but damming up the Congo River like this, uh, it might actually do that. These great rivers are the source of, of, of water for a lot of people. And when one country along that, that, that chain kind of dams it up, it really does create tension. So I think it's part of a broader global trend that we're seeing uh, in terms of, of water conflict and water politics. So. Let's move on to our third topic now, uh, and that is going to be another frustrating report coming out by uh, a Western human rights organization. This time it's Amnesty International. And they came out with a with a report on June nineteenth, and this is the title: Chinese Mining Industry Contributes to Abuses in Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, now, the reason why I say another one is because Human Rights Watch uh, came out with a report on on Chinese, uh, on certain Chinese uh, certain elements of Chinese mining in, in Zambia. And what was interesting about this was. Uh, you know the academic community poked holes in this thing so fast. I mean, it was so poorly researched, uh, and, and y- y- you start to see a trend now, at least with these two reports, um, just how bad they are. And 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 let's just you know, Cobus. Before I get on my rant, which I'm I'm really just winding myself up here, uh, give me an <laughs> overview of of what the what Amnesty is saying. In in let's then separate the quality of the reporting. Which is one thing, with do they have a legitimate case, which is another.
1: So Amnesty was looking at, at the position of what they call artisanal miners. So these are small-scale miners um, who drive quite a you know, surprising amount of, of, of Congo's uh, mineral output. Um, so these are frequently, are, are frequently individuals or small groups who, who work very low-tech. They pretty much dig the minerals out of the ground, you know, kind of using shovels. Um, and, you know, kind of how, how these communities are impacted by, by large-scale mining, Okay, but
0: let, um, let, me, let me interrupt you very quickly here just on the question of artisanal mining that you bring up. Um, there's been a rise in, in the eastern Congo of Chinese artisanal miners in response to the Dodds-Frank uh, Act, which was some, a, a piece of legislation on, on financial reform in the United States. But hidden in that, a little piece of that, was, the, uh, was, the Dodd, was a conflict mineral provision uh, put forth by the Enough Project. And one of the interesting unintended consequences of it was that as companies like Apple and uh, Nokia and Sony and all of them had to kind of verify that their minerals from the Eastern Congo were not coming from these conflict mines, uh, they left. And what ended up happening is the Chinese artisanal miners came in. So that's just a little bit of context for the rise that we've seen in the past year to two years of artisanal miners. So sorry to interrupt you on that.
1: Mm-hmm. But I think in this, in the case of this of this report, the, the Chinese presence is mostly seen in terms of, of big companies and particularly Chin- Chinese Congo, the Chinese DRC joint ventures. I think the artisanal miners that that this report looks at are Congolese artisanal miners, as far as I understand. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, uh, they do. Now the they what the first problem with this is
0: this report is they say Chinese mining industry. Uh, and again, we've talked about this in, in, on, on a number of occasions, how the word Chinese can be a very misleading word because uh, it, it kind of mixes together these artisanal mines. No, not specifically for this report, but in general, when you talk about Chinese mining in the Eastern Congo, there is a mix of state-owned enterprises. There's a mix of private enterprise, not state-related, and then you've got the artisanal miners. And I feel that when the, in at least the executive summary of the report that they put forward, they don't specify this. Um, so they, no. say, they say right off the bat, Chinese mining companies operating in the Democratic Republic of the Congo need to do more to prevent their operations from leading to human rights abuses. And again, that is a very ambiguous way of characterizing, uh, you know, what's going on. And, and that's part of the frustration.
1: And my, But my – go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. I think the other problem is that you know, is the, the, the report is structured around three case studies. So the first case study is um, relates to a company called Katanga Mining Limited, which is actually listed in Toronto. So I think that, I think that officially doesn't count as a Chinese company. Then the the other two um, are. China adjacent. The the one one is is, um, a subsidiary of of, of Chinese state-owned companies and the other one is a, a joint venture between China and the DRC. So, you know, kind of, again, between, you know, kind of, they seem to be a bit fast and loose with those distinctions, you know, kind of to my taste. Here's the okay. Now I'm going to get to to
0: the to the nitty gritty here, and this is what you know makes me just so infuriated. Uh, so let me read another quote from uh, Audrey Gogrin. Gogrin, I'm not sure how you say her name. Director of Global Issues at Amnesty. The DRC authorities have not only failed to prevent mining companies and traders abusing rights, they have themselves violated human rights to facilitate mining operations. Uh, and this report kind of goes on over and over again to say the DRC is not adhering to the United Nations law. The DRC is not you know, enforcing these regulations and whatnot. If you spent five minutes in the DRC, you recognize that there is no functioning government. This is a government filled with kleptocrats and it's just so aggravating that they pretend like the DRC is a real normal government. This is a government where the police and the army prey on its own people. The government is about as corrupt as you're ever going to get. Transparency International puts it in the bottom 5 or 10 percent of the most corrupt governments in the world and yet you have these reports coming out of london with these kind of people who seem like they've never spent any time in these countries which says that you know basically you know holding them up to standards that they're simply not it's a divorce from any kind of reality and that context isn't in these types of reports
1: it's what infuriates me about this yeah, no I completely agree with you. I I from their perspective I can imagine they probably did it this way in order to to have some kind of hard and fast objective you know kind of criteria with which to 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 compare the DRC to other countries. It's you know kind useless, of so no. you know useless, frequently useless, useless. they yeah yeah. I mean, you know, kind of like you keep going, yes, and you know, so you know, like if if, if you've only read about the DRC, you already know that all of this is happening anyway. So it's not surprising, you know. Um at the at at the same time, the kind of human rights abuses that they that they detailing, that I found a little also kind of strange. Like on the one hand, like there's the you know, these different case studies. Um some of the case studies are to do with the horrors of artisanal mining itself. You know, kind of so like you have have these hand dug shafts that fall in on people and so on so you know kind of like who's, whose fault is that except for the the kind of unstructured mining sector in the DRC. you know the the other is um communities being displaced and then communities being cut off from their water sources so i mean those are serious but at the same time you know, kind of they're not really making clear how that fits into the, the bigger kind of human rights situation within the Congo. Like these cases are seen a little bit in isolation. And, you know, and um, you know, if, you, if even if you read, if you're an informal reader about suffering with the DRC, that doesn't, you know, not to sound awful, but I mean, that doesn't sound like the worst thing that's happening in the DRC even today, you know, right. kind of um, people. People having to walk, you know, two hours to get to the water sources, whereas before they had to walk fifteen minutes. Doesn't seem, you know, it's it's awful, but it's not the worst thing that's happening in the DRC by a long shot.
0: No, certainly not. But the the other problem I have, and this is what uh, a, a number of academics with the Zambian Human Rights Watch report kind of blew apart, was they didn't place this in the broader context. In that in Zambia, what they pointed out was that Chinese abuses were not being recorded at any higher levels. In fact, they were better than many other foreign operators in, in Zambia. Uh, and, and that's, again, not to defend the Chinese. But what the point is to say is that this has to be placed in a certain context in order to uh, understand the severity of the situation. When you, when you see what's happening in the eastern Congo – It is effed up beyond any imagination. So the problem is not the fact that there's just the Chinese who are in there, which if you read these reports, they lack the context to really point out the fact that in the Eastern Congo, you've got the Ugandans, you've got the Rwandans, you've got elements of, you know, the Congolese themselves who are in there. You've got even, you know, uh, you know, non-state actors from a host of countries who are in there just messing it all up. It is so... Convoluted and just disgusting with what's happening there. And the fact is that I've come to this conclusion that, you know, the reason why the world community has not really kind of taken on the DRC is because at the end of the day, um, you know, too many people are making too much money out of this. And, and, yeah. and, th- and they're profiting from the chaos. And my problem when I read these reports is that if you don't place it in, th- in that context – of how many actors from so many different countries are in there, and you focus in on one, it gives the impression that the Chinese are somehow disproportionately um, evil or you know a guilty or responsible when there is so much responsibility and guilt to go
1: around and and that 's yeah. my big frustration here I think the other you know kind of one of the revealing things about this report was the you know they they um it detailed how they tried to interview these Chinese companies um, to get their reaction, and you know, not surprisingly, none of them wanted to talk to them. Um, and I think this this shows that this is a weak spot in in China's international relations. They need to, to start engaging with these NGOs because otherwise, they look they look so bad. You know, they, they look they look worse than 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 the reality actually is. Um, you know, kind of, and I, I know also, even from experience, that if there's any kind of international controversy around a company, the representatives of that company just refuses to talk to any journalists, any NGOs, any academics. They just crouch and hope it, it kind of goes, it blows over. Um, and you know, this is a problem. Like this is, you know, kind of these companies need to to start. You know, entering into a dialogue, if only to kind of to not have the situation where China looks like this, this evil monolith taking over the world. You know, here's my favorite part of this is the
0: last line where there's a quote from Amnesty and it says, if all companies involved in the extractive industry carried out due diligence checks to ensure that they are not purchasing ore and minerals extracted under exploitative and degrading conditions, this would go a long way to clean up the mineral trade. No shit, Sherlock. I mean, it's like if only we could give <laughs> skittles to unicorns. I mean, it's like these people must sit in London, and 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 you know, in these. I, I just I, it's just baffling how amateur this is. It's as if they, you know, they live in this ideal kind of clouded environment that is just you know, and then I, I don't even know where to start because it's like if only there wasn't any violence in the world, we'd all be a happier place. Well, there is. It's messed up. It's completely messed up. Um, But to kind of suggest that this is what constitutes a human rights report of any substance is to say if only everybody just followed UN laws and I don't know. I mean, it just is aggravating. And so far when we're talking about Chinese human rights reports from the West, we're 0 for 2 now with the Human Rights Watch report and now Amnesty as well.
1: Yeah and you get the feeling that that they realize that China Africa issues is sexy in the world at the moment so they so they're trying to you know because so, so much of, of obviously of of NGOs are so dependent on funding and so much of it ha, you know kind of depends on producing reports that that catch Press attention. You know, so I, want, I was wondering to which extent that kind of drove the report to begin with, you know, kind of like to put it under a Chinese heading when not even all of the companies involved are Chinese. Um, you know, it just, you, you, the feeling is, it, it felt a little cynical to me, well, you know, kind of like there was this kind of cherry picking of, of relatively minor problems, uh, you know, kind of within, uh, around Chinese minds and ignoring the entire like messed up context, you know, within, within, its, within which it's happening in order to to kind of grab the kind of headlines that, you know, brought the, the, the report to us as well. Well, it's
0: abundantly clear that they're way out of their depths. Uh, they clearly don't understand the issue. They clearly don't understand the context. The people who work on those reports, my um, guests, do not have backgrounds in the field, uh, and it's evident because it's really an amateurish. It's it's it, to me, it's it's basically what a high school report, what I would expect out of a high school or a freshman <laughs> or sophomore or college report, you know. And so people may say, "Well, Eric, what do you want them to do?" And let me, you know, point you back to you know Yang Jiao and what he talked about illegal gold mining in Ghana. And he pointed the. Fir- and you you read through this you know this report that he put together, and you realize. It's a complicated situation. You realize that there's context to it. You realize that, you know, there isn't one side that is responsible and there aren't simplistic solutions put forward at the end. Like, you know, if only everybody, you know, sang kumbaya and hold hands, the world would be a better place. So so frankly, you know, I'm cynical about human rights groups in the first place because I just, uh, you know, I think they raise important issues. I think they get discussions going. But I think the people that work in them are, for the most part, you know – they're wealthy elites who oftentimes don't spend time in the countries themselves, and, and I think they're kind of cut off from a lot of the, the key issues. And it's evident. And if you don't believe me, just look at this Amnesty International report. So, Cobus, uh, last final thoughts because I think people are already getting fed up of me ranting about human rights groups.
1: <laughs> I think you know I, th- I think they potentially could do val- valuable work. Uh-huh. Um, I agree. You know, kind of, but but they need more context. And I'm always surprised at how little interchange there is between formal academia and the NGO sector. I always thought that, you know, kind of in, in theory, these people should be in, in conversation with each other and in conversation with the press. But frequently you find the press, academia, and, and the NGO world working in isolation from each other. Um, you know, so there's a, there's a bunch of academics who is doing very, very kind of good work about Chinese in Congo, you know, kind of. And it's very hard work. And we interviewed some of them already. So, you know, it's, it's always surprising to me when these people's work don't show up in, in NGO reports, um, and you get the feeling that all of these groups are, are talking past each other. And, you know, I, I can't really see why, you know, kind of, because we're living in a world of the Internet, you know, kind of, so why why aren't they more in, 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 in contact with, with each other, and why why aren't they working together? Um, yeah, yeah, I don't you know, think they're going to call I me. They, Let me tell yeah. you
0: that right now. I'm not sure, <laughs> I'm so sure they're going to call me. Uh, so uh, Well, that'll do it for this edition. What do you think of... of my ranting and raving about uh, about human rights groups and, uh, and what they're reporting on in the DRC. Uh, we'd like to hear from you. You know, we have a sense of humor about these things. So one of the things is that when we post up on Facebook or on Twitter, people do criticize. And so we say, as long as you keep it professional, don't make it personal. We love the discussion. So uh, our best place to do it is at Facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Uh, also, we're on Weibo. Uh, we're at Weibo.com slash Zhongfei Xiangmu, which is, of course, uh, China. Africa project in Chinese Eric Meister is handling that for us out in uh, in China and posting every day there as well to keep the discussion going in Chinese uh, and so if you'd like to, uh, to follow Cobus, I think the best way to do it is to go onto our Facebook page but also Cobus, you're on Twitter as well where can people find you on Twitter?
1: I'm at Stanesk, that's
0: S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And I'm at E-O-Lander, that's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting almost every day the top China in Africa stories, and you'll find Kobus and I are also participating in the discussion on Facebook. Uh, and then, of course, you can follow our podcast right here. Uh, you can obviously download it at iTunes, which is where most people get it. Uh, but we're on the BlackBerry network uh, around the world, but particularly in South Africa, and also on Stitcher and SoundCloud. So we're all... Uh, all over the web wherever you want to do it and you can also find our podcast on our mobile app. Uh, We have one for both Android and iOS and you can download that either by going to the Google Play Store, iTunes or if you want a link right off of our blog at ChinaAfricaProject.com So that'll do it for this edition of the China Africa podcast. Uh, We'll be back again next Sunday with another edition and until then, thank you so much for listening.